Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. Today, I am so happy to welcome Miguel de Leon to Voices. Miguel was born in the Philippines, and he moved to California when he was 10 and graduated from UCAL Berkeley with degrees in linguistics and urban planning. But it was his job at a neighborhood restaurant that changed his path forever and sent him on to New York, where he has created a restaurant and a wine career that is nothing short of amazing. And he's worked at the likes of Momofuku and Casamono. And he is currently the extremely award-winning wine director at Pinchinese, which I have never eaten at yet, and I can't wait to one of these days. And he he gets described as having soulful comfort food and wine-pairing menu. And has he's earned the restaurant a really great place on the New York Star's wine list. So these days, Miguel needs a wheelbarrow to cart around all of his own accolades that he's won in recent months, including Imbibe Magazine's 75 People Working for Better Drinks World and Michelin Guide Sommelier Award in New York, and the James Beard Award for his essay on intersecting identities and decolonization. And best of all, most recently, he was named one of wine enthusiasts, future 40 tastemakers and innovators. So I am really glad that he has even half a minute to spare for our podcast today, because I've been wanting to talk to Miguel for ages. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. No, it's a huge pleasure. And I have to say that is the longest intro I have ever had to give on voices. <laughs> <laughs> You've been wine director at Pinch Chinese now for almost six years, and you're doing so many cool things there championing female winemakers and New York state wines and natural wines, uh, among a lot of other things. So I'm just wondering where you get your inspiration for your award-winning wine list. And what lights you on fire about a new wine? What makes you think, I have to have this, it has to be at the restaurant? There's a few things, really. Uh, In terms of inspiration, I I find it literally everywhere. Um, Sometimes it'll be from a museum visit, Sometimes it's from reading a book. Sometimes it's with conversations with friends. Sometimes it's just challenging the notion of like what 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 can exist in this category. So, for me, uh, it it can really come from anywhere. Um, one of my favorite kind of like recent things that I started really kind of focusing in on, and I think. You know, if you're writing a wine list, you have to be mildly obsessive about something anyway. Absolutely. I was fortunate enough to travel to Austria this past March, and it was just an eye-opening experience, obviously considering, you know, how none of us were able to travel for the past two years, and then to kind of experience falling in love with wine all over again in a really kind of visceral, agricultural, and through a farming perspective. So I thought that that was 
really magical, um, especially going through, you know, some of the more vanguard uh, Austrian winemakers who were, you know, doing biodynamic preparations and doing a little bit more kind of like interesting things with farming and minimal practice. So, you know, thinking about how that can that can read on a wine list. Ultimately, if the stories that I want to tell all have a similar theme, then I think that that's that's a a really wonderful goal for a wine list to have. And I know that a lot of people don't really put that much thought into a lot of that kind of stuff. But you know, that's the artist at heart kind of speaking. No, absolutely. And it does. I, I think all of us in the wine sector, or even just, you know, wine enthusiasts, you know, the difference when you're reading a wine list, and you want to take it home and snuggle up in bed and read it as if it were a book, or just, you know, a list of well, I could have this or I could have that. So yeah, exactly. You know, that effort really makes a huge, huge difference in in the experience of reading one of those lists. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also just a lot of fun to I like like breaking form, clearly. <laughs> I mean, I was clearly uh, very inspired in writing my first wine list by Paul Greco of, of Terroir and how he kind of formatted, you know, this change of how people talked about Riesling, for example. And Paul would put like encyclopedic things on his wine list. And I was like, this is crazy. I've never seen a wine list like this before. And then even looking at, say, like traditionalist wine lists uh, and, and seeing that there wasn't really information you know there's it those those lists to me i don't like a didactic wine list where there's only one way to take it in exactly um, oh i want you to have a little bit of involvement i feel like wine is always a conversation there's a reason why bottles are shaped the way that they are and it's because we need to be able to share them and i think the same way about you know curating a list of 400 of them and that's 400 plus conversations at least that we can maybe have uh and that's just on on what's available um, not to mention like the the greater world of wine. So uh, that's that's a that's a really big impetus for me. What lights my fire about neck new wine specifically is if it's especially delicious, and I know that what's going on behind it coming into the restaurant is something that I can you know fully appreciate and defend. I'm I'm really excited about this conversation because I think people can get too wrapped up in, in talking about wine in particular ways. And, and some of those ways are quite exclusive. But I like that some of your criterion has to do with being especially delicious and having a good story to tell. And those are the things that make wine, you know, relationship builders and community builders. You know, wine was invented in the first place, so everyone could sit around a table and, and drink it. So especially delicious, I think, has to be a, a wine list criteria, or in my book anyway. So, But you, you said something interesting about wines uh, in an article that I read for wines on your list, the wines that you choose for Pinch Chinese have to be defensible at every turn before you'll put it on your list. And I really like this concept. So I'm dying to hear you explain it, you know, sort of spin out this philosophy in your own words for, for our listeners. Sure. Um, so obviously it starts with that deliciousness thing, right? But that's, that's, that's us meeting halfway, right? That's the halfway point of me interacting with that wine. It's had a life before, and once once it meets up with me, then it'll have a life after. But to consider that part beforehand, right? And so in terms of being defensible at every turn, I mean, well, was the land treated fairly when this grape was being grown? Were the people who were tending that land treated fairly when this was being grown? We forget sometimes that wine is uh, the sum of a multitude of thousands of human decisions, right? It's a human consequence. Like there's no there's no such thing as grapes being turned into wine just because like you don't you don't pick right you don't you don't pick a bunch of grapes and then all of a sudden it just just turns into wine that never happens that's the mystique that a lot of people make right no people forget yeah 
Exactly. And, 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 and not just that, there's also that notion that like, as soon as it's pressed, it's just going to make itself. Maybe for some people, that's their philosophy, but you also end up making very flawed wine at the end of that day. But to me, that's, that's where the defensible things come in. And I mean, okay, well, if you've, if you've treated the land right, that's a great step. And then if you've treated your people right, that's another great step. And then maybe if you're thinking about, if there's a lot of bigger picture things that align, then I think I can absolutely tell your story way better because those are also things that I firmly believe in. Um, and so it just it just so happens now that now we're talking about things like social equity and justice and, and diversity in the spaces, and that's an even better story to tell, right? Uh, the, we, get, we get much more color. And for us to be so obsessed with how a grape grows, how a vine grows, uh, I think we can also be as obsessive with, say, how your vineyard workers are being treated or how recyclable your items are in, in that cardboard box. Like, so all of those things come together as part of that defensible rep. You know, if, if, am, I, am I teaching my staff all the right things? Uh, am I teaching my, my staff historically contextual things about, you know, uh, agriculture in California, for example, if I don't include, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act or how we were denied Filipino rights in San Francisco? There, we don't, those things get glossed over. And, and yes, they're part of our history, but, and some people don't want to talk about that in wine, but I think it, it paints a much better and much more complete picture when we do that. And that's what I mean by defensible. I, I am so happy about this. You're, you're completely singing my song. And I do, I agree with you entirely that there are a lot of conversations in wine right now that are pretty uncomfortable. Um, you know, clearly you're, you're talking about some specific ones in California that a lot of Europeans definitely are not familiar with. Um, and it's, it's important to have that backstory. It doesn't have to be the fulcrum on, upon which, you know, the bottle is going to tip up or down, but having that backstory, I think gives people more vested interest in what went before and what could come after in the right hands. So I, I completely agree with that. It's it's a it's an interesting concept, and also how 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 wineries are are engaging with their vineyard stewards is is equally important. So um, I like I like defensible. I'm going to steal that term from you. I think. <laughs> please, <laughs> please. I think I think I think the more people think about what goes on their wine list, right? I, I think a little bit of thoughtfulness goes a really long way. Well, and there's. Yeah, there's a difference between sustainable and defensible. I, I like that term. One is one is a very passive way of looking at it. And defensibility is you taking a very active route and making sure that your stakes are just as high whenever you're putting something on the line. That's true. I like that. It is it's more active. Yeah, it is much more active than passive. That's that's really yeah, that's very insightful. You have got so much going on besides uh, doing that and I love the fact that you're educating your staff about this by the way, but we'll touch on that later, but Outside the res- the restaurant, you are also you know terrifically busy with a ton of projects, and I know our listeners are going to want to hear about this. I I want to start with the article that you wrote for the James Beard and other writing that you've been doing lately, because you describe yourself as a wine professional of color, and you joined a white dominated industry at a really young age, and you became very successful, and now a lot of your writing, and it sounds like a lot of the talking that you're doing and educating that you're doing as well, focuses on those issues of social justice and equity and you know, the sort of systematic inequalities in our own sector. So I'm just, I, I, I'm curious as to, you know, what sort of spurred you on to take up these topics, as we were just saying, you know, they're not comfortable, they can be awkward, they can make people um, be very 
divided in their opinions and in what they are willing and not willing to say. So were your own sort of personal early experiences in the industry something that pushed you on to do this writing and to achieve and aspire in the wine world? Or, you know, how did you get to that point where you thought, I'm going to write about this and I'm going to put myself out there? Because it's a brave thing to do. I just wanted to be honest with my wine experience, really. Obviously, a lot of my early formative wine experiences were kind of coded within that white space. I was fortunate enough to be in a really kind environment when I was learning about wine for the very first time. You know, the very first person who took me into wine was Jonathan Waters um, at Chez who's a wonderful man. And I, I miss him dearly. But the the idea of a very kind of, call it like a very open-armed look at, at how people come into wine, right? I knew nothing coming into that space. I knew that like wine was a very rarefied thing and it, it, it was expensive for me at the time. And for him to just be like, you know, we have all of these wines open it's for everybody here to kind of understand what they're trying to sell, but also kind of make you have a connection with what we're trying to do here at the restaurant. So that I've, I've really taken that kind of experience. And at the same time, after moving to New York, kind of realizing that, you know, it's an industry first, really. And then to, to make it even more lonely is that uh, I, I tended to be the only person who looked like me in wine classes and certification programs in places where bodies were legitimized in this space. And I've I've worked in New York wine now for about, gosh, 16 years. And it's it's just now that we're kind of starting to talk about, you know, oh, Miguel's getting all these accolades. Like, I never, <laughs> I mean, thank you for the recognition. But, you know, when you just put your head down and work and do the things that, that make you happier because you get to be your yourself fully in this space, then imagine the possibilities if we just allowed that from the very beginning. So, you know, a lot of a lot of my experiences that I wrote about were, they're painful. I mean, they, they still continue to, I mean, I, I, I have a wonderful therapist that I talk to about this, you know, every so often, but it's, it's, it's been a long time to, and it took a long time for me to kind of be, to get out of that mentality of that, I wasn't worth it or that, that there, there wasn't, there wasn't a group of people who weren't around me. And so just, just by kind of being a little bit more active and in, in finding my own community and, and trying to see what it meant to just be myself in a space where I didn't have to, you know, take my earrings off or get a haircut or lose, lose myself in a, in a personal identity kind of fashion when I was engaging with wine in a professional setting. I think that, that that's all I wanted to speak about. That got fast forwarded when, obviously, when Julia Coney started speaking about, you know, her experience, her black wine experience after George Floyd was murdered. And really that, that, that kicked my ass into saying, well, I know that I can do more. And very quickly I was like, well, what's, what, what are the things that we're, that we're not talking about? What are the things that I've experienced personally that I have a little bit of beef with what are the things that my friends and i always talk about after we come away from a wine tasting and say well that didn't feel right or like that felt off we always had these little debriefs ourselves and then i was i just aired a, i just aired them out and you know if 
if that kind of honesty is the thing that's going to get people to pay attention to something like that, then let's all get louder. Let's all talk a little bit more shit. Let's talk, let's get a little bit more angry because then it could be better. Yeah, I mean, it's completely in agreement. What, just if you're willing, and, and uh, obviously we all understand that it is painful and these things are challenging because they are real and they, you know, they don't just happen once in our careers. They happen over and over. But, you know, one of, just one example of one of the things that you and your colleagues and your friends would find that was off because I think it's important to to talk about these so that other people can say yeah hey I thought that was off and if Miguel says it was then then I can trust my instincts yeah um so I mean there's there's a couple ways of going about it it's you know if you're if we're going to wine tasting every once in a while if you if we were traveling as a group for example we'd notice that we would get much shorter pours than people and so that was that was key and we were we were all buyers at that point too and we were like okay well i guess we're only going to taste a little bit of this wine as as opposed to how everyone else is getting treated here the second was like a very clear like denial of our like just existence like until we got to the front of the line no one would acknowledge us or unless someone who was very clearly uh, a person of influence would come up to us no one would pay attention and so we just started to say, you know what? Well, if 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 that's if that's how it's going to be, then we're just going to go organize our own thing. <laughs> we'll taste these wines with our reps, and maybe that's the only way that we'll experience these. We've stopped. I mean, there there were a few of us who just absolutely stopped going to wine tastings because of that kind of mentality. And for those of us who do continue to go to wine tastings, it's a very clear kind of protocol. You know, like we'll check in with each other, we'll see each other at the door, we'll walk together as a group, and then kind of leave together also so there you'll you'll notice you'll notice when the people when the people who look like me in in that room all, all kind of gather and around and, and talk amongst ourselves about what's going on it's because it's it's the same idea of of why you wouldn't maybe want to talk to a certain producer because they were doing something skeevy or it's 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 a similar kind of whisper network that we're developing it's just that you know there's it's much less coded because it's much more explicit we can't turn off being brown and black on a on a selling floor of course not and yeah but i i like the way that you're you've developed a strategy to push back you know in a way that is is clear and intentional but it's not confrontational um it's so important it's you know there's there's using our voices is really important and using it in a way that gets our message out firmly and loudly, you know, without becoming part of the problem. I mean, I will, I will ask more of my white colleagues if, if this is what, if that's anything to, to take away from this is that, you know, we're, your, 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 your brand and black colleagues are tired. They're, we're very tired. The last two years have been harrowing for us. And if there's any way that you could use your body or your position to make sure that we get a little bit of ease, <laughs> that's, that's something that is absolutely something well i'm i am a white cis woman and i can tell you this is this is why i do what i do because i think well it's our job to shine lights on this it really is all of us um you know i i will never have your experiences but i can shine light on it where i think it's sitting in the darkness and it shouldn't be so and i think more people need to do it and you know as a woman of course as i said you know i'm a white woman so that made life easier but as a woman you know i've been passed over ignored you know i have made myself be quiet when i probably shouldn't have felt that i needed to so it's i think it's my it's my job it's my honor and my privilege to be able to shine light on on things that you know my colleagues need help with uh, so and like your writing um, as i said it's brave 
there are always going to be haters and judges out there, but um, people need to hear it. It's encouraging, and you're, it's you know, getting back to your staff, um, educating your staff, and being a role model, and and you know, using your voice is going to be hugely, hugely helpful. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have a very diverse staff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and I mean that that's just a consequence of us trying to find, you know, people who are maybe didn't have any habits about how to talk about wine. Um, I think it was very conscious decisions to, to bring people up, you know, a couple of our psalms that, that we've had come through pinch were, you know, they were our bussers, they were runners. We want, we've, we've really want to invest in this idea that like, that you can learn about wine through any channel and you don't need a pin. You don't need a certificate. It might help you in the long run because that system probably won't change for a while, but, at the end of the day, your education personally is, is way more meaningful um, because of the relationships that you make and how you speak about it. And, and for us, it's just really finding a way to empower people with the kind of vocabulary that they already have. You don't have to learn wine speak in order to, to love wine. And, that, that, and consumers can do the same thing. You know, I feel like every time you present a guest with a wine list, it is intimidating to receive a document that's 300 wines long (laughs) for you to choose one for the night and all we want to ask is there's a reason why there's somebody whose job it is to guide you through this and if you trust us enough we'll find the bottle for you promise and we don't ever have to say it's dry or it's funky or i want something that's red that's that tastes like this there's a obviously we we talk about education as a, as a platform for people to understand wine through a much more kind of like academic way or a much more standardized way but when we standardize something we also flatten that human experience of something right you have to sacrifice a little bit of that individualistic artistic expression if you're going to standardize something but but there's a reason why a mcdonald's tastes the same way in italy as it does in the united states but at the same time if i were making sangiovese say in california or in texas it won't taste the same as the Sangiovese that you're having in Lazio, right? There's those are two, those are completely different places that have their own vocabularies about something that's that's there, and and in the same way, you know, I I just want to make sure that it's not about demystifying wine either. I hate that I hate that term. Like wine should be romantic and mystic and magical. It it should be. It it's pleasurable. It's hedonistic at the end of the day, right? But there's an allure to it that that we need to keep. We are at, like as sommeliers, we're storytellers and magicians at the end of the day, right? I need to make sure that when it pops something open, you're not just going to fall in love with it. You're going to figure out how did I find that for you? And it's it's it and it's part of that defensibility strategy that I was speaking about earlier. Well, it's because I've done my due diligence and my my you know I've hidden the rabbit in the right portion of the hat for you to not see it well, um, where everything feels like a surprise, right? And that surprise might come from Hungary, um, from or or from you know, or from Georgia, or from or from a, a, a region in Germany that isn't all that celebrated. So that that to me that that's the idea of of giving people this kind of power of of speaking about validity and emotion and wine should elicit things in us it it is a powerful thing there's a reason why people write about it in poetry because it is artful but it's ultimately it's a personal human connection right your tongue and your brain exist in your head and i I, the only thing that i can do is maybe suss out the closest thing of how you approximate what i'm tasting and in that there's poetry in that there's magic and that's that's the education bit that i wanted that i want to do because it's not it's not helpful for me if i tell my students that Bordeaux is a place in France that they'll never visit. You know, 
you can just tell them, hey, you know, Bordeaux's a place and it gave us this, but now we have to react to like the very modern consequence of what that means. So, you know, well, here's Bordeaux. Here's a, it's a place that gave us this kind of wine, but now it's also going through these kinds of things, say like a drought or say like a lack of migrant labor, which also affects, say, like the price point, its its perception, the very clear kind of class divide within the chateau system. So all of those things together make for a richer story, obviously, but also have a really deep impact on how someone perceives about Bordeaux. It's not a rarefied thing. It's not it's not something that's stuck in time. Wine has to be evolutionary, and education can be too. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. Yeah, that is that is such a great message. I I love just the simple power of that message that wine should elicit some things and it should have some magic and we don't need to strip that away to, you know, to educate people. I I think that's a very very good starting point for any wine conversation. I think I think whenever sommeliers deem themselves experts, <laughs> like that's the red flag, right? Like I like I like absolutely not knowing everything about this 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 journey. I like that there's still a big left turn that we can make and not know where we're headed. That's my favorite part of being in this sector. Um, I know you're working with the Hugh Society as well. Um, as part of their resource council. And I, I'm a big fan. I love the core values of the society, you know, creating equitable, equitable spaces and redistributing power um, and sort of developing a toolkit for, you know, advancing people who have been unrepresented, you know, BIPOC people, LGBTQ people, getting them involved. So I just want to know, you know, what's your role on the council? What are you doing to, um, to help out. I can tell you're a great educator. You know, I love educating too. So when I heard about you getting involved with Hugh and starting a curriculum, um, I thought this is going to be awesome. So I want to hear what you're doing there. Yeah. So kind of a little bit of what we've been speaking about already. Um, my role specifically is to kind of help develop curriculum and national development for the chapters that are opening. How many chapters are there now? Uh, I mean, there's more than a few. We're opening up Today's the today's September 9th. Tomorrow, September tenth, we'll be opening Nashville. Wow! So you know, already existing. There's New York City. There's Philly. There's Atlanta. Yeah. Atlanta. There's uh, Texas. There's Northern California. There's South Africa. There's DC, and we're looking to open in Chicago very soon. So there, there's a lot, there's a lot of places where there's a lot of folk who just want to have community in wine. That is fantastic. And and all I want to do is make sure that whenever whenever someone starts this talk about, I want to learn more, that they're learning through a lens that they know, that they don't ever have to change how they think or they speak about wine, how they don't lose themselves. Back to that idea of that. Um, Completely agree. And people's memories and experiences play a huge part of how they learn about wine. Trying to wipe those out is a big mistake. Exactly. Um, there's a there's a wonderful movie coming out called Blind Ambition that features four Zimbabwean. Um, I know. Yeah, and the, you know, know. So, so these four Zimbabwean sommeliers who, you know, for their, what, three, four years coming into wine, and now they're kind of going into the World Wine Tasting Championships, right? There's a, there's a few scenes in there 
Um, specifically, uh, there's a sommelier named Tanasha Nyamadoka. He's based out of South Africa from Zimbabwe. And in a few key scenes in that movie, um, it seems as if he and I wrote the same article, right? He, he describes, you know, going through his grandfather's um, forest trail as they're foraging for things. And he says, well, this is a fruit that only grows here in this part of Zimbabwe. And that is a kind of tree bark that only I can understand. But whenever I go into a space and they say blueberries, raspberries, like he had to go buy that at a grocery store. And I, I, yeah, I mean, I went through the same thing. I was like the, I grew up in a very tropical place where blueberries didn't exist. I didn't know what a current was. And and I still, I kind of still don't know what a gooseberry is. I kind of have an idea now. Does anybody know what a gooseberry is? I lived in England for 17 years. Is anyone sure? Yeah, I kind of have an idea now. I think they look like mini tomatillos. Exactly. But <laughs> but 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 it goes. It comes back to that, right? It's it's that. Um, let, let's use your kind of vocabulary of of growing up into wine. I tell my students a lot that like specificity is a good thing up until it's not, right? And the same in the same way that like there's there's no wrong answer in wine up until there is a very wrong answer in wine, right? Um so when we talk about the things like, you know, well what are you tasting here? It's not helpful for me to kind of hear about, you know, how you how your aunt's perfume closet or whatever is that thing that you're smelling it is helpful for me though when you say oh I, it reminds me of this brand of perfume then then we can kind of come to some sort of like middle point there and that even just that level of understanding of me needing to know right or wanting to know really um if you're if the thing that makes your hair curly is the thing that you're smelling in that wine what is that like why why is that why is that the thing that that gets you there and how is that sense of memory then tied to what you're experiencing because then that could be really joyful and and inclusive it makes people feel vested absolutely because then then we don't we don't have this idea of oh i don't know what that is You've just told me what your reference is, and now it's my responsibility as the person educating you to meet you there. Um, and and a lot of teachers, I think, uh, look at this top-down philosophy and say, "Well, that's that's not how you should be teaching. You should be teaching about France and the AO system." It's like, why? I live in America. Most of these kids, and and honestly, most of the people that I'm gonna gonna be teaching, maybe they maybe travel isn't part of their vocabulary. Maybe travel is something that's like really exclusive for them. It's it's hard for them to kind of think about spending money to go to a wine place. So what does your new curriculum look like? How are you driving this into it? I'm so curious. The first thing that we're doing is recentering the space, right? So kind of making sure that whenever whenever we step into the space, before we even talk about anything, it's kind of having an understanding that what you're going to say here isn't dumb. The only question, the only dumb question is the one that isn't answered and that there's a vested interest in both of our that that I expect you to do the work because I'm you're expecting me to teach you right so it's a it's a very mutual understanding of like what education looks like the second is kind of how we speak about wine right and so this idea of decolonization is that for a lot of folks it's, it sounds like very like hokey race theory but at the same time it's like how is it that the market of wine can adjust very quickly versus the education of wine so we can't, it, it seems to me that we're obsessed with this idea of, of Napoleon splitting up Burgundy and that's why we talk about it that way. 
But which is so tragic. Exactly. But but when we talk about American wine in the normal wine context, right, we spend one day as opposed to the six weeks of France that we that we usually study in. And I, I, I mean, like I said, I'll, I teach mostly Americans and I'd rather have them understand like what's in their backyards first and how we talk about that and, and say, OK, well, you're in America. If you want to be a wine person, let's find wine that's around you. Um, because then that also creates a, a, a more interesting economy of what's available. I think people pay attention now, at least here in New York, to wines that are domestic, but not your not your like blue chip domestic places, right? So yes, there's always going to be Napa Cab and Oregon Pinot, but now we can also include that you know New York Riesling in that conversation. We we can include wines from Texas in that conversation. We can include hybrids from Wisconsin in that conversation. We can talk to people in Missouri, in Ohio, in Virginia, um, who are making exceptional wines, world-class wines. Yeah, the only time we ever can say thank you, climate change. Yeah, but also at the same time, thinking that climate change is part of the curriculum, do you see? So it's it's understanding that all of these things have have intricate parts. Wine is a big freeway. It's a big freeway with a lot of potholes. We just have to choose the lanes that we're going to go on. And we want to make sure that... Oh, I love that metaphor. And we want to make sure that everybody doesn't feel those potholes in the same way, right? To me, if you're a white person, you have a really wonderful giant rig that can smooth over those potholes really well. You're not going to feel them so much. But most of the time, if you're a brown person in wine and you feel lonely you feel like you need to spend the money to get a certification, you're already on the furthest right lane trying to cut in. Your car doesn't work all that great. Maybe it even has a bumper missing. You can't pay for the insurance and your steering wheel's only like third a third there. So how can we get to that place where we're in that fast lane to get there? And this is one of the ways that we can think about it is that if education can reframe just by location, for example, if I'm teaching you wine in Texas, why won't I teach you wine from Texas first? Quite right. And it's so it seems so obvious, but it, it, it has never been obvious until now in wine education. I, it's a really modern approach. It's yeah. And it's and it's because it's and it's because there's there's still this kind of like really fantastical hierarchy of of wine being a eurocentric cultural thing and you know for for americans to be very quickly consuming more and more wine every year it's it's also kind of wonderful because then there's the demands that that a consumer has can also be placed on education it's not just the academic part of it it's not just this very cut and dry this is the aoc kind of chat it's also well this is the aoc and maybe part of the AOC can demand that their migrant workers be paid fairly. Isn't wouldn't that would like wouldn't that be wonderful? Like I think that that's there's there's an education evolution that we have to consider because education is consequential. And I think if you're educating somebody correctly, even if they don't go into wine, maybe they go into something like public policy, that affects winemaking too. Right. That is so true. And and we need that to happen more and more often. 
I think, you know, people's view of wine education is so narrow. And I think what you're doing is really, as you said, widening the highway. It's that's that is incredible. And I, I like that. And the evolution, I think, really has to happen. I mean, it's it's very easy to get stuck and we were, um, and to a certain extent still are in most of the world, stuck in a very old-fashioned, traditional, elitist style of wine education. And it just doesn't work for everyone anymore. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's kind of understanding that even education, within education, right? That, you know, finding that people learn differently and people need, to, need a little bit more time. You know, if you have, if you have dyslexia, um, then... There's a there's a way for you to kind of get the information to you, and it's very similar with wine. You know, maybe maybe it's not the traditional route that we need to understand first. Maybe we're teaching people about biodynamics from the very beginning, and then kind of seeing what the consequences of the land look like when you're not treating it that way. So there's there's it's it's a it's a much bigger conversation, but at the same time, it's 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 wonderful and engaging when students ask about sustainability first, say. And, and not the particulars of a place because of variety. Grapes are grapes. Sorry. Like at the end of the day, grapes are grapes. And we can be obsessive about like that, that Macintosh versus Fuji versus Gala analogy. Right. But, but if it, it's not worth it to me to put that in my body, if I know that it's being, you know, rounded up with pesticides and, and covered in, in all sorts of gunk. I can talk to that about my. I can talk about that with my students very clearly from the beginning, and say, you know, wine looked like this when it was first being made. There's some wine that kind of looks like that now. And how do we get to the messy middle? And that that's an important thing about education, also. Well, you've you've walked right into my trap because I wanted to hit you up on what you see as some of the biggest issues facing the industry right now in terms of climate change and sustainability. We just started to touch on it, but I know you've been writing a lot about it for New York Times and Food and Wine and Bon Appetit and things. And I really want to hit you up on what you think, aside from the fact that we do have this education problem, which we're all working on, but what do you think the biggest issues are facing the industry in those areas, climate change and sustainability? And as you said, the consumers consumers are becoming much more aware and rigorous in in their demands and and what they're willing to pay money for. I think it's it's just being savvy about where you put your dollar. We keep saying that food is political and it, it sounds a little hokey sometimes, but it is. And where you, where you put your dollar really goes a long way in terms of what it is that you buy in into. So it's things like, for me, the biggest questions, obviously, right, climate change in the in the bigger scale. Within your local economy, it's talking about what kind of labor goes into making the wine that you like and maybe demanding more of that, having a fair, transparent. And do you see that in your, in like consumer behavior? Are you actually seeing that? I mean, for one of the first questions that we've started asking as a group of Psalms here in New York is, do your vineyard workers get access to health care? That's never been asked before as a tasting note, mind you. And like, it's not really on technical information, right? But again, if we can be obsessive about how people treat Viris, we can be absolutely obsessive about how people treat each other. And that's one of the first things that we can do is say, how human is this wine? <laughs> right? Like how it, all the decision making that we've asked before, how human is this wine? And then how human is, is, is it? There's a really wonderful quote that Ariana Occupinti says, and it's that we're not, we're not inheriting the land from our ancestors. We're borrowing from our children. And that's something that we need to kind of recontextualize here too, right? 
yes, it's climate, but also, it, yes, it's how we're responsible about this thing. And it's it's agriculture. It's all those Sicilians. I think she stole that from Alberto Tasca. <laughs> I mean, probably. They do feel the same. And I think, I think it's, a, again, in Italy, um, and particularly in places like Sicily, where, you know, viticulture is pretty hard to do. It's it's true. It's this tradition of of understanding that you know we the earth the earth that we have is the only earth we're going to get, and taking care of it is is crucial. And that's and that's a very uh, decolonized way of thinking about it, right? Indigenous peoples before us came and and have proper relationships with the land, right? You know, uh, if you look at, if you look through some texts, you know a lot of first peoples here in America, for example, consider you know geographical features as like family members. They're they're the they're they're the brothers of the river. They're the they're the they're the sisters uh, of of the canyon. So and there's there's ways that we can think about that as well. Is that if you're if you place environment in this kind of familial notion, wine becomes a really interesting things on how you communicate with one another. But sorry to get back to that question of about you know say climate change sustainability. There's a lot there's a lot of things that kind of tie in into that also climate change. Climate justice is environmental justice, is labor justice, is migrant justice, and all of that stuff as well, right? Like, in in order for wine regions, for example, to compete with migrant labor, if your if your harvests are all getting earlier and earlier and earlier, who picks that stuff? Who who ends up bearing the brunt of that work? And that's something that we we always have to remember, and not just that. What kind of danger are we putting these people if? If it's earlier, which means that it's drier and there's wildfires, what does it mean for um, what does it mean for terroir to kind of accept that? And so, th- th- those are those are big questions that that I think are are challenging because I think the question of terroir, it's not just time and place; it's time and place and people inconsequential uh, uh, in kind of like this consequential like domino effect, right? And so, and terroir. We, we, we can't think of terroir as a fixed thing. I think we have to understand that like terroir also just, we're just seeing this kind of very slow, but very true change within like this geologic time, as opposed to like the way that we experience it, which is a very short human time. You know, maybe it's just, maybe it's just now that we're experiencing the consequence of terroir 10,000 years before. Well, I, I work with Professor Atilio Scienza, who is one of the living legends of, of geology in wine. And uh, he would like to give you a big hug right now. <laughs> uh, I, I think you, you've hit on a topic that, you know, is, is too deep for us for today. I mean, no pun intended, too deep. But it's true, terroir is, is not as superficial as we've been led to believe in the past. So it's, it's important to keep our eye on, on so many um, conceptual aspects, you know, like a multifaceted gemstone kind of a thing. Before I let you go today, I was just going to ask you, um, you know, if you were going to give a piece of advice to a young brown or black person, you know, and I'm sure you give pieces of advice all the time, um, if they, you know, somebody who wants to enter the industry in any way, shape or form, you know, as a producer, as a SOM, as an influencer, a TikToker, or, you know, a writer, whatever, into hospitality, what would you tell them to do to get their feet on the path? What would you suggest, advise? Um, put put both of your feet on the ground and think about intent. Intent is something that you can taste. Intent is something that you can feel. Intent is something that you can receive as a person. And so when we talk about this intentionality of making delicious wine, 
it's we're also talking about the intentionality of how you make that delicious wine, right? And so if you're going to come into this, think about why you want to come into this. Is it because you think that this is exciting and this is something that you're going to be for me, it's the reason why uh, I wanted to get into this is because I could learn forever. And I, I, I like being an eternal student. The best teachers are eternal students. I really think that's true. I, I love being an eternal student because you're never narrowing your scope, right? You're always expanding your vision. But that also means that you get to include as many people in that vision with you. Well, I don't think we're going to get anywhere better than that. I am so grateful for this conversation, Miguel. Truly, you've added a lot of learning objectives to topics that you know are being covered now and need more attention. But you've added some, you know, some new lanes to the highway for sure uh, about the conversation that I will take forward with me. So I'm really grateful and thank you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely! Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.